0: Well, happy Lord's Day, it is good to be face to face before the Lord together in worship this morning. I always love 4th of July weekend because it is an occasion for me to figure out who the holiest among us are. Many of us flee away to go camping and others of us, the holy ones, we remain. So to those of you on the skeleton crew, it's good to see you this morning. You're very special. Others among us, well, it seems as if you are the ones who have gone out of town. But you're welcome. We're glad to have you with us before the Lord. I, I, I'm kidding, of course. Uh, we're going to be in 2 Kings this morning. And we're going to be examining chapter 4 in just the first seven verses. Light shines in the darkness... And the darkness has not overcome it. Ahab's Israel is full of idolatry. And yet God's word continues to be spoken from the mouth of God's prophets. Ahab is dead, and yet that monstrous woman Jezebel remains in the palace and her son squats upon the throne. The war between Yahweh, the one true God of Israel, and the false idols continues. Elijah has been taken up in a whirlwind, and Elisha has taken up his mantle. There is a big question that sits over this first half of 2 Kings. Remember, Kings is all just sort of one book. But in this midway point, there's one question that's driving the action since Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind. And it comes to us in chapter 2 and verse 14. Elisha asks it himself. Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? He had worked mightily through Elijah. Elijah had called fire down from heaven and proven that the almighty God of the universe was with him and overcoming all of his rivals. So now it appears that Elijah is gone, and the question is, where is the God of Elijah? Has he gone somewhere? The answer has been resoundingly, no, God has not gone anywhere. And so now we'll see through a series of miracles performed by Elisha, that the same spirit that was in Elijah persists in him; that God hasn't gone anywhere. And as dark as things seem, God is still at work. In chapter four, here is actually very clever. So last week we looked at chapter three and Jehoram, son of Ahab. Remember, Ahaziah died after falling out of his bed, or he fell out of a window. Then took up in his sick bed. Then looked to the Lord of the Flies and didn't make it, he died. His brother now, Jehoram, on the throne, he decides he's going to go put a rebellion down in Moab without consulting with God, and then he wanders around in the wilderness with Jehoshaphat, and they run out of water. And then who's there but Elisha? He looks finally at this point for a word from the Lord, and Elisha gives him a good word. He says, the Lord's going to provide you water, and he's going to provide you victory, and the people well, they drink the water, and they take hold of the victory, but mostly until we get to that rather difficult text at the end of chapter 3, where they seem to have Mesha, king of Moab, on the ropes, it's the last city of Moab to be conquered, and all of a sudden he sacrifices his son on the wall in the sight of Israel, and we read that there's great wrath against Israel, and so they go home. We explained all of that last week, and so I'll refer you there, but the question left now is, I know Elisha's word came true, word for word, but the victory of Israel wasn't quite total. Is he really operating in the spirit of Elijah? Is the God of Israel still present, or has he left his people entirely? Things are dark. Dark. And then we come to chapter 4, and what we have here is a remix of 1 Kings chapter 17. Remember there, Elijah shows up on the scene, and he performs a series of miracles that show God can provide for his people. He raises the dead, cares, well, widows care for him, and he cares for them. It's It's a mutual thing, but he performs a series of miracles that prove the power of God that the world works according to the word of the Lord. And here in sort of a remix of chapter 17 and chapter 4, the whole chapter works together to teach us that Elisha bears the ministry of Elijah, that the world still works according to the word of the Lord. And though it is dreary in Israel, the darkness is punctured, by the light of God's word. That's sort of the main idea that I've set before you this morning, that the word works in the dark. Listen to the word of the Lord. Outline is there before you. The bolded part is where we will focus our attention today. The rest of it is for future weeks. Let's pray, and then we'll get into the text together this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would meet us now, that you would clear us in our minds of all distraction, help us to focus on you and to open our ears. We ask that you would pour out your spirit on us, that you would fill us, fill our cups up with your grace so that they might runneth over with blessing. pray that you would give us a, a whole mess of blessing on our hands this morning. Speak to us now. Help us to listen. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So we have that question, does Elisha really operate in the spirit of Elijah? Has God left his people? Is God still at work in the dark? And we come to a text that is full of tragedy. Verse 1 of 2 Kings chapter 4. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord. But the creditor has come to take away my two children. To be his slaves. We read of this widow, and immediately our blood runs cold. She's got a double dose of sorrow. She has lost her husband and will lose her sons. Her problem is death and debt. And she has an answer for neither. Particularly, we need to relate to a woman in this position in the ancient world without her husband was in dire straits and a woman without her sons was in abject poverty without much a chance at any sort of prosperity or comfort. Not to mention to lose one's spouse is a wound that never stops hurting. When one loses a Wife or a husband, it is as if they themselves are split asunder. Marriage is the most intimate of human relationships. And so its dissolution is the most painful of loss. And we know this. We have a number of widows in our congregation. We have seen their tears, been with them as they buried their loved ones, sung hymns to God week after week together with them, and recognized that the wound of losing a spouse never does quite heal. This woman has lost her husband. She's in pain and Elisha is going to care for her. And we're we're going to see that in a few moments, but at this point, it seems prudent to point out that we ought to care for widows very practically. And so I, I tried to put together a list of a few things that we can do to practically care for the widows in our midst. Firstly, we can care for widows by praying for them. Going to God on behalf of others is a good thing. To ask that in his kind providence, he would lift up their hearts, that he would fill them with his Holy Spirit, that he would give them the joy of Christ is good and necessary work. We want to pray for one another all of the time, but I I think it is important to give a special place to widows in our prayers. Secondly, The Bible tells us that there are circumstances in which we would provide for widows economically. And this measure, of course, comes with all sorts of caveats in regards to our fiscal responsibility, some of which are outlined in 1 Timothy 5. You can read that this afternoon for homework. But the the bottom line is that for faithful saints who have lost their husbands, we are to offer some measure of economic help. Thirdly, we can care for widows by being available to help with those everyday tasks. Is there help needed to get groceries? Maybe have a light bulb changed? Is there a leak somewhere that needs fixing? You must be a people who stand ready to help with such sundry needs in life. Fourthly, we care by widows for widows by being relational. I mean, it is a good thing for us to keep up. I hope that we would have a congregation of people that are tired of other people. And what I mean by that is, I would hope that we would see each other enough, and widows in particular, that they would be tired of seeing us. That there would be real relationship there. That's much preferable to anyone feeling lonely. I'd rather you be sick of each other than lonesome. Care for widows by praying, by supporting economically, by helping with practical needs, and and by engaging in relationship. This last one's more of an encouragement, but it's something I've seen recently, as some of you who are widows have got together with other widows to encourage one another. I think that's great. That's the sort of thing a pastor loves to hear about. Hey, a group of us widows are getting lunch you know, once a month, and we are opening the Lord's word together and studying it, and we are praying together and encouraging one another. You now, widows helping widows. Friends, we as a church are called to love one another, and how that plays itself out is, I mean, the ways are many but we do want to put our hands to practically caring for widows. The Bible is clear about this, that it is a priority for us if we are to call ourselves Christians. James chapter 1 and verse 27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Yes, we want to make sure that we do a really good job of holding fast to sound doctrine and to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We want to be unstained by the world. We want to be holy as God is holy. And part of how that holiness will manifest itself in us is in our care for widows and orphans. And so I think immediately, one of the things I wrestled with when looking at this text, when a widow shows up, she knows that she can go to Elisha, who is the man of God, for help. And we want the widows in our midst to feel that way themselves, that the church is a place they can go to for help and for comfort. And we want to be the kind of people who don't force them to come to us, but who are willing to go to them, to engage in relationship, to pray for them. To care for them. This widow comes to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead. You know he feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. Her pain is not just death, it's debt. Apparently, they have enough debt that would require her sons to be taken from her and enslaved. The creditor here has all the compassion of the IRS. He's going to take her children from her. And I think we read something like this, and we can hear her plea. It's not a question here, but there's a question in her plea. Look, she says, my husband is dead. And this is what you know about him. Your servant feared the Lord. He was faithful. But he's dead now. And the creditor has come to take away my two children to be his slaves. Do you see what she's saying? We were faithful. How has this happened to us? My husband feared the Lord and now he's dead and now his sons are going to go into slavery and I'm going to be left with nothing. How could this happen to me? You know, we might rephrase it. Why do bad things happen to God's people? Why, she's asking. I don't think that it is a superfluous question. Perhaps it is a good one. But we do need to consider That maybe, just maybe, she has bought a lie that many of us buy into today. That by virtue of our faithfulness to the Lord, by virtue of our Christianity, we are somehow made immune from suffering. I go to church, I pray, I I read my Bible, I, I love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength. That means... Some will teach you. Nothing bad will happen. Nothing could be further from the truth. Christians are not immune to suffering. In fact, we are promised suffering as we follow Jesus Christ, who was our suffering Savior. Why why do bad things happen to God's people? There's two reasons. Sin, and secondly, because God has planned it that way. Many of us bristle at that second reason. But the reality is, nothing comes to God's people apart from his loving hand. Evil is not a free agent in the world that God is just sort of reacting to. Oh no, this terrible thing happened. I'm God, I've got to fix it. No, God rules and overrules evil men sin and mean it for evil god ordains it and means it for good we need to look no further than jesus he goes to the cross because of the sins of men but according to the plan of god he goes to die in the place of sinful men I think when we come to ask that question, why do bad things happen to God's people? We do well to switch the question, to change it. Because that's a wrong question to ask. And not why do bad things happen to God's people, but who have I trusted? Who is my faith in? And when we do that, we are rem- reminded that we have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ that our faith is in the God who sent his only begotten son to die on the cross for the sins of all who would repent and put their faith in him. This is a God that we can trust, even when we might not understand all the reasons he has for ordaining suffering. Sort of like, uh, there used to be very small insects. Some would call them noceums, mosquito-like things. And they're called noceums because you can't see them. So if you had a tent outside and you opened it up and there were, it was filled to the brim with noceums, and you looked inside, you wouldn't see them. Same tent, if there was a St. Bernard in it and you opened it up and you looked inside, you would see Saint. Bernard. Oftentimes, God's reasons for ordering the world the way He has are a lot like no They're there, but we just can't see them. Friends, just because you can't see or understand every reason that God has ordered the world the way that he has doesn't mean those reasons don't exist, and it doesn't mean that you can't trust him. In fact, it's God's sovereignty over all things that enables us to trust him for promises that we like to claim. Right? Romans eight twenty eight, All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We can know that everything that happens to us happens for us precisely because God is in control of it. That's an encouraging thing. Nothing comes to you on accident. Nothing comes to you outside of the will of God. That means, because you know God is good, and that he's your father, that you can trust him. That's why 1 Peter 4, 19 says, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And Peter also tells us, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you. Suffering will happen to us. We are not immune to it. Children of Christians die. Planes that Christians ride on crash. Christians get sick with cancer. We are not immune from suffering, but we are loved by God, and we can entrust ourselves to him in the suffering, knowing that he has ordained it for our good and for his glory. Because we know he's good, because we know he loves us, we can trust him. Love what Spurgeon says on this. God is too good to be unkind and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. When we do come to a situation where we encounter suffering, something like death, or debts, like this widow. Let us adopt the attitude of Job, who when he lost all things, didn't grumble, didn't say, why do bad things happen to God's people, but instead, arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, a sign of mourning, fell to the ground, and worshipped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let us resolve now, before suffering comes, to trust God with the future, such that we can worship him in faith, even when night seems to be its most dark. He is good. He is for us. And when we cannot trace his hand, we can trust his heart. The widow comes and she is concerned. My my husband, your servant, feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take away my two children to be his slaves. Bad things do happen. And this widow goes to the right place. You have the key to the whole text there in verse 1. She cried to Elisha. This is where we should go, what we should do when we encounter suffering and hardship. When we don't know what to do, we should take a page out of Jehoshaphat's book. Lord, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. A page out of this widow's book, we should come to him and look for a solution. God, I don't know what to do. Speak to me. Help me. This widow has come to the right place. And through Elisha, has access to God. It was a good reminder to us that we don't need to go through any kind of mediator to pray to God. That we have the great privilege of coming to God not through prophet or priest. Well, we do come to him through the prophet, the priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shed his blood for us on the cross so that through one spirit we can have full access to to God the Father. We should take advantage of this great privilege that is ours. We should come to God in prayer. We think about our kind of access that we have to God through Christ, it should be staggering, but I've always had one illustration sort of stick in my head uh, in regards to this. Tim Keller, it's just a sentence, but Tim Keller, said it somewhere years ago. He says, the only person who dares to wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access to God. You ever think about that, Christian? You have childlike access to God the Father. The creator of all the cosmos is willing to hear from you. He never sleeps, never slumbers. His attention span isn't limited by space or time. He cares for you. He loves you. He's given you access. Maybe you need to be reminded of that this morning. Fathers, you are loved by God. Mothers, you are loved by God. Men, women, you are loved by God. Children, that song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's so simple. But that one simple truth, it changes everything when you really know it. Jesus loves you. You can trust him. You can come to the Father through Jesus the Son. You can take everything to God in prayer. You need not bear all those burdens alone. God loves you. So when you feel utterly burdened or sentenced to death, go to the Lord. Prayer is a confession of your dependence on God's power. Love the example the Apostle Paul gives us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 8. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Friends, maybe you are suffering today, or maybe it's out in the future, But when you do, the interpretive lens that you need to read your suffering through is this, that God is helping you to rely not on yourself, but on him, and that ultimately he is going to get you safely home, that his purposes for you will be fulfilled, That indeed, he can deliver you from that deadly peril, from this deadly peril, from the next deadly peril, and ultimately, he's going to deliver you from the dead. He's going to raise you up to eternal life because the Lord Jesus Christ was raised up to eternal life. You can come to him in prayer and depend on him in the midst of suffering. When you feel like you have been sentenced to death, you can go to the God who gives life and who raises the dead. Depend on him. Our widow has the double sorrow of death and debt. Her husband has been taken by God and now her sons are going to be taken by God. The creditor. She cries out to Elisha and he stands ready to help in verse 2. And I can't help but contrast this with chapter 3. Do you remember the kings are wandering in the wilderness? There's no water. And Jehoram finally decides he's going to look for a word from the Lord. And Elisha says to him, verse 13 of chapter 3 What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. It says, you have looked to your false gods for life. Go to them. I have nothing to say to you. But here to this widow, you see the change in his attitude? Look what he says. What shall I do for you? What can I do for you? Tell me. He's ready to help. He's eager. What do you have in your house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. And then he said, go outside. Borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. This is wonderful. Elisha is, is ready to help, and he gives her these semi-awkward instructions. What do you have? I have a, I have a small jar of oil. I can work with that. I can work with that if you'll if you believe my word. There's a little test of faith going on. You've come to me for help. Now, take me at my word. Believe my word. Act in faith. What I want you to do, I want you to go to the neighbors and just borrow as many jars as you can. I mean, there, there is a fork in the road for this woman. She could dismiss Elisha's word. Look, like, man, that's dumb, all right? I don't have any oil, so there's a little tiny bit of oil. I'm not going and humiliating myself and begging my neighbors for empty jars, not doing it. Or she can get her boys and they can go, knocking door-to-door like Girl Scouts selling cookies, and ask, you know, do you, have, do you have an empty jam jar? Do you have some you know, mason jar that I can have? And she can get as many as she possibly can. The Lord loves to test our faith in such a way that it s- is strengthened and that our hope in him grows. He often delivers us in ways that causes us that cause us to exercise our faith. Love a story I read about Theodore Roosevelt Sr. That's Teddy Roosevelt's dad. I'm reading a biography on Teddy Roosevelt. And his dad is this incredible character in it. And there's this one little anecdote Uh, that David McCullough records this way. Let me share it with you. This is courage. This is Theodore Sr. Courage he rewarded openly and sometimes with dramatic effect. At a rented country house in New Jersey one summer, he surprised the three youngest children with a new pony. When he asked who would jump on, Connie, then four, was the only one to not hang back. And so... He declared the pony was hers, to the humiliation of her older brothers, including the future president. Connie would later write, I think I did it to see the light in father's eyes. I think Roosevelt's challenge to his children to jump on the horse and his delight when courage revealed itself shows us in a small way the sort of faith-building work God does in calling out our faith to action. He challenges us to obey his word, to believe his promise, to jump on. And part of what ought to motivate us to obey his word is that it pleases God when we obey his word. Sort of tests our faith and We have the opportunity to put a smile on his face, to see the light in his eyes. Our obedient faith pleases God, and it strengthens our delight and trust in him. This is is why God takes care to deliver his saints in ways that exercise their faith. God does this throughout the Bible. Come and walk on the water with me, Jesus says to Peter. Bring me that boy's lunch and I'll feed the thousands. Cast the nets, I know you've been fishing all night, cast the nets on the other side of the boat to bring in the fish. The Lord loves to build up and bless the obedient faith of his people. He challenges us to throw out our nets, step off the boat onto the water, pass out the bread, pour out the oil to get on the horse. Our Heavenly Father teaches us to grow into Christian maturity, to walk by faith in obedience to His voice. His voice calls forth the fruit of faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, we, we must actively trust God. We must be ready to listen to his word. And not in some cold way, but because we belong to him. Not to earn our position in his family. He paid. He paid for our adoption as sons and daughters into his family with the blood of Christ. We're we're in the family. No, no, no. We aim to obey God's word as an expression of our love for him. We obey him in worship because we want to see the light in his eyes. We're in the family and we want to please our heavenly father. The question is, will we trust him enough to obey his word? This widow has a decision before her and she acts in faith, verse 5. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons and as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. The widow and her boys carry the empty jars through the back door of their home. They draw the curtains shut, they bolt the door and the pouring begins. You can sort of see the, the scene. Mom says okay, you two are gonna hand me the jars and I'm going I'm going to fill them with our one jar of oil. You can sort of hear the grumbling, can't you? Mom, that doesn't make any sense. How's one jar going to fill all these jars? Do we have to? Yes. Why? It's not going to work. Why are we wasting our time? Because I said so. Sort of picture the scene, perhaps unsure of herself and Feeling a little silly, Mama begins to hum an old hymn to herself as she begins the work. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his goodwill, he, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. The song in her heart, she prays in her mind, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, please, please, please help this work. Tears splash the table before any oil leaves her jar. And then, and then, the oil runneth over. The first jar is filled, and then the second. And then the third, gather not too few, the prophet had said, gather not too few. And she had done her work well. The next jar and the next, her song swelling louder, trust and obey for there's no other way. Her praying gets, her praying gets stronger. Thank you, Lord. You are worthy You pour out blessing upon blessing on your servants, grace upon grace. Her tears of despair are transformed into tears of gratitude. You can see the boys sort of laughing now as they get one jar after the other, and they store them away over and over again. It goes on until finally she says, give me another jar, and they say, there aren't any more. God takes care to deliver his servants in ways that exercise Their faith, the word works, even in the darkness, works behind closed doors. God's word works. I mean, this is the whole point of Kings, that everything in the world works according to the word of the Lord, and that we should hear and obey his word. It's it's very simple, and yet it's so hard for us. His word works. Will we listen to it? Will we trust him and obey? Note here too, that this miracle takes place behind closed doors. She's not live streaming the multiplication of the oil on Instagram. You know, she's not tweeting about it or posting it on Facebook. And yet the Lord delights to meet her need to give the oil this is this is thrilling god is is transcendent he rules the whole world but he's also eminent holds the whole world in his hands and he can give attention to a widow behind closed doors he's not unable to work on the fringes. Yeah, sometimes God does his work in the spotlight, and also he does his work outside of the limelight. He meets this widow and performs a miracle for her behind closed doors. Friends, God is intimately involved in your life. He cares about you, just like he cares about this widow. He cares about big things, death and loss. And he cares about those tiny things in your life, lost keys. Friends, you can trust the Lord. You can obey him in faith even when life is really, really difficult. You can obey his word even when you can't figure out why he has you borrowing jars from the neighbor. You can trust him. this, This is thrilling that God cares for us in this way. She fills the jars with oil and then she goes to the prophet so that he can tell her what she already knows. Verse seven, she came and told the man of God and he said, go, sell the oil and pay your debts and you and your sons can live on the rest. I love this. The Lord goes beyond what she needs. He not only provides for the debts that she owes, but for her daily needs in the future so that she can live. The prophet says, sell, pay, and live. He's going to arrange for her everyday needs to be met. You can see her each day around the table looking in the face of her sons, eating a heart full of gratitude. Friends, God provides for our daily needs in the same way. And we wonder, we pray, give us this day our daily bread. So often we use all the resources that God has given to us in life. Everything is a gift from him. Almost ignore it. Yes, of course, we we did the obligatory prayer, and now we are filling our bellies. And the truth is, we don't really depend on God. We don't really believe that he's the one that gives us our daily bread. No, deep down underneath, if we're honest with ourselves, we're saying, I did this. I depend on me. I have my career, I have my money, I I went to the store, I took care of all of the daily needs. Everything we have, every good and perfect gift is from God. Is that evident in our gratitude towards God? Do you give thanks to God for giving you your daily bread, for giving you life and breath and everything, for giving you all that you need to live until he calls you home. Let us be a people that gives thanks. But perhaps most brightly we see that her debts are paid Her sons are freed from slavery. She is freed from anxiety. She is free. She's been redeemed. Her sons have been redeemed. In the Old Testament, there's this concept of a kinsman redeemer. This is somebody who is responsible to redeem a near relative out of debt and or slavery. It's what Boaz does for Ruth in that story. To redeem someone means to buy them back. The redeemer, very simply, pays the price for someone else. This woman comes to Elisha and he serves as her redeemer. He buys her sons out of slavery with this miraculous oil. In Elisha's redemption of the widow and her children illustrates for us Jesus' redemption of his people. I mean, apart from Christ, all of us are enslaved to sin. We owe God a sin debt that we cannot pay. We deserve to be thrown into the eternal debtor's prison of hell. But in his kindness, Jesus Christ, a prophet far greater than Elisha, Came to redeem us, not with oil, but with His precious blood. He bought us back from death. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we who trust in Him can have life, and a future, and hope. Non-Christian, you can have life and a future and hope only if you trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. We have hope because Christ has redeemed us and therefore we live in light of that wonderful hope. Said this way in Titus 2, verse 11, for the grace of God and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Friends, Jesus Christ has redeemed us. He has called us out of slavery to sin and into worship. He sends us out on a mission in the world to make known his wonderful name and the wonderful news that life can be had in him. And so, as we live in this present age, we seek to live godly lives as we wait on him, our blessed hope, to return and make everything sad untrue. We live as a people who he has made pure. We live as a people who are zealous for good works, that we might bring glory to our great God and King. This is miraculous. Some of us, we go, we want to see miracles, like this with the oil. We want to see miracles like Elijah with the fire. We want to see miracles like Jesus turning water to wine. But friends, don't you understand we see a far greater miracle in the ordinary gathering together of the saints every week. God is among us. If you want to see a miracle, look around. There are people who have been moved from death to life. Right next to you. It is a miracle when dead sinners are brought to life and they put their faith in Jesus Christ. That's a miracle. Let us not be so foolish as to not be awed by it. Non-Christian, you might not get oil. You want to experience a miracle far greater than oil being multiplied? Put your faith in Christ. Listen to the word of the Lord and be brought to life. We see in the darkness of this widow's peril, which is happening amidst the darkness of Israel, that God is still at work. And sometimes we might feel, whether by virtue of our own circumstances in this life, That we too live amid such a thick darkness. But, friends, the Word works. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us to not forget in the dark what you have said in the light. You are ever faithful, ever true. We can trust you. Father, we thank you that we can relate to you as father rather than as judge because of the substitutionary work of Christ Jesus on our behalf on the cross. We thank you that Jesus Christ didn't stay dead, but that after three days he rose again that he is seated right now at your right hand and that soon he will return to make all things new. He is our blessed hope and it is in his name that we pray. Amen.